Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It's hard to believe that we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You're telling me producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our originals page when shopping for books and movies we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great conversations. I was so excited for our big Star Trek film franchise series this season. All those movies adapted from Gene Roddenberry's original 1960s TV show. As a huge fan, I know that you geeked out over analyzing the adaptations. Absolutely. From the motion picture to the Kelvin timeline films, seeing the Enterprise crews on the big screen was a dream come true. Our list of source material isn't just all books and plays. We have the original series in our list of source material. You can rent the episodes to watch and enjoy and support the show in the process. For our Millennium Trilogy series, we covered films adapted from the original books that launched Lizbeth Salander, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, The Girl Who Played with Fire, and The Girl Who Kicked the Hornet's Nest. As much as I love Fincher's version, the original Swedish versions are the way to go. We also did our Die Hard series in Season 7. I can't believe Die Hard and Die Hard 2 were adaptations! Two of the greatest action movies ever. Well, one of them at least. The other is awfully fun, though. We revisited the classic Mary Poppins for our 1960s movie musical series. A spoonful of sugar always helps the medicine go down. Old Boy was intense for our Park Chan-wook Vengeance trilogy. And East of Eden and Giant were highlights of our James Dean series. And a fun time travel mind bender with predestination to cap things off. Find all the books behind these adaptations and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Dive into the source material for your favorite movies. Check it out today. Thenextreel.com slash originals. everybody i'm pete wright and that over there is andy nelson hey 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 and we spoil movies tonight on the show christopher nolan tries to save the humans in his 2014 film interstellar 
save the humans we love. What are you going to do with it? I'm going to give it something socially responsible to do. Can't we just let it go? This thing needs to learn how to adapt, Murph. Our game was mask up. Like the rest of us. This world's a treasure. It's been telling us to leave for a while now. Your daughter's generation will be the last to survive on Earth. You're the best pilot we ever had. Get out there and save the world. Everybody ready to say goodbye to our solar system? To our galaxy. Here we go. All right, Andy. I Okay. Have, you'll notice... We have this fancy Google Doc rundown, and you'll notice, uh, and I also notice, that initial thoughts are blank on this movie. <laughs> that both of us withheld our initial thoughts from one another. There is no outline. It's a total surprise. And when I say total surprise, what I really mean is I don't think you like this movie any more this time than you've liked it in the past. Am I right? You're not right. You, you like it even less. <laughs> I like it even less. No, I actually... Um... As I watched the film, um, because I was really conscious uh, this time as I watched it of of the issues that I had last time. And so I was really paying attention to everything, um, trying to pinpoint, okay, so where are my problems? And as I went along, I really was just trying to cognizantly, cognizantly, consciously sure. pay attention to things that, that were really um, just really bothering me. As I went through the movie, I found myself largely um, uh, enjoying most everything that was going on. I enjoyed this world that Christopher Nolan and his brother created. I enjoyed the uh, the performances. I enjoyed the structure of the story. I enjoyed, enjoyed the themes. Um, I enjoyed a lot of it. There are some elements of some of the themes that I felt were a little bit of a stretch. Um, but what I found this time as I watched it is... Even when there were elements in the film that I was really struggling with, um, I I kind of was able to step back and go, you know what? It's it's not perfect, but I feel like there's a lot of ambition here, and I I guess I ended up kind of walking away with this a little kind of more like Cloud Atlas or something, where it's a really ambitious mess, and it's not as messy as Cloud Atlas is. But I do feel it's there's so much ambition um, on display here that it's hard to not be impressed. And I was really impressed with everything. There's only one 30-minute chunk uh, toward the end. Luckily, it's a very long film, so a 30-minute chunk is only about a sixth of it or so. Um, that really kind of um, I still struggle with. And uh, it is really the element that kind of throws this whole um, this film into our current series, the the time travel uh, series that we're doing here and it's the whole the the whole element of uh of our uh, of that of our protagonist as he kind of journeys back through time i guess um that really i still struggle with um but everything before it was really strong and after that it ends really strongly and so i have a hard time coming out of it saying that i just i don't like it i i think that it's above that now I am so relieved 
I am so relieved to hear you say that because I, I have always liked this movie. Uh, and I think if there was a time when I said that I didn't like it, it was probably the result of peer pressure from you, I'll bet. Uh, <laughs> and <laughs> That's what I'm here for. And so I, I watched this movie again and I found myself, uh, uh, you know, in watching it again, I found myself really moved by it. Uh, you know, I'm like you. I love the themes. It is an ambitious movie. Uh, there is one uh, there scene that I and, and in fact, one sort of speech that taints uh, a, a a portion of the movie for me. I just hate it. I think it's silly. Uh, but by and large, uh, and, and I guess I should say that's our TNR five-star uh, movie, what do we call it? The five-star cutoff. The five-star cutoff. Like that. That's what makes, there's a sequence uh, where I, I can pinpoint where this movie is and fails the five-star uh, cut off. Um, it, but other than that, I really like it. And in fact, I like the end so much more now. The part that you say taints the movie for you, the 30 minute sequence, I really like. And I think it is, it both um, serves the ambition of the science that they were trying to communicate. And we should say this movie is ambitious, not just as a movie, but as a as an effort to communicate incredibly complex science. Um, but I, I think it's ambitious in the way that it, it uh, um, serves as kind of an homage in, throughout to, you know, other great space films. You know, a callback, uh, multiple callbacks to 2001 that I found just really sort of heartwarming. Um, and interestingly, uh, while I really like the cast and the characters, my favorite individual character is not a human. Uh, it, it is the TARS robot, which I think is one of the coolest characters and most interestingly written uh, composites uh, in science fiction. I adore it. I adore uh, Tars and Case so, so much. So um, I'm, I'm definitely in favor of this movie. I'm so glad to hear that it has improved for you. Yeah, I, I am too, because it was one of those films that I always kind of felt like uh, at a loss with when I was talking to people who just were love it, loving it so much, because some people I talked to... Um, you know, compare this to uh, 2001. They say this is the 2001 for um, uh, for this generation. And uh, I still don't completely agree with that. I think 2001 is a much stronger film. But I, I do think that it is an, as ambitious, you know, and I, I think that what uh, the Nolan brothers do here with their script is they push forward a lot of ideas and concepts and uh, in a really smart way, much like Kubrick did, uh, where they take uh, take concepts and, and the way that science has developed and they, they put it forth in a story where the science is allowed to actually kind of be scientific and allow kind of cinematically to explore some of these deeper concepts of of traveling through great distances of time, through wormholes, of what black holes do, of relativity as far as when you're close to a black hole or not close to a black hole. Um, uh, just the way that uh, a planet, our planet in particular, could potentially die and like the dust storms, the rolling dust storms that are kind of devastating the planet and killing everybody. There were so so many elements of real world kind of study that they integrated into it that I, I can't help but think that there was a lot of smarts in the way that this was put together. And it, I think it helps that um, they had um, 
uh, Kip Thorne, who is a, uh, a theoretical physicist at Caltech, on board as a scientific consultant and executive producer. It just allowed for them to put a lot of that in here. Yes, there are some elements that they that that I do feel bog things down a little bit, but on the whole, it's a lot better than I remembered. So I'm actually kind of glad it ended up in this time travel series. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is an interesting one to throw into time travel because, as you mentioned, it's like the scientific exploration of time travel. Um, in a way that it, it potentially is a realistic possibility. Yeah, so we should talk about the use of time and see if we can do it without completely tripping over ourselves, uh, since it's the thing that got this movie into this particular series. First, I, I have to say, I love the use of time uh, as they sort of introduce us to the concept of, of time uh, through space-time and relativity. And uh, the right. the example sequence here, the real standout sequence is, uh, you know, when they go to this to the surfing planet uh, and it happens to be so close to a uh, to a black hole that uh, one hour on the surface of that planet uh, is equal to uh, what did they say? Seven years Yes, yeah, like seven home. years, right? Seven years at home. So truly extraordinary. So when something goes wrong on the planet and they're they're kept there for too long, decades go by uh, to those outside of that. <laughs> the gravity is something. I don't know what that is, but well, it's, that's it's the, the whole real, idea, yeah, but, right? Because something how the the planet or the the black hole is like. I, I don't fully understand it either. So, it's, time, it's just, yeah, because time moves more slowly. Um, when you're closer to a black when you're cl- hole, the more gravity you have, and so in, yeah. that this is, you know, if you uh, in in the documentary, there's a documentary that comes with the thing, and if and in the documentary they they describe it uh, as you know, if you have a very precise atomic clock and you're standing on the on the bottom floor of a building and you have a twin who has a the exact same atomic clock and it's totally synchronized to you, and he goes up to the tenth floor of this building or whatever, and you wait. You know, when you come back together after some long period of time, uh, the the watches will no longer be synchronized. Um, you know, one of them will be will have aged, uh, you know, relatively more quickly yeah. uh, right. as a result. And that happens in spades here. That introduces us to space time in this movie, and I think it does a, an admirable job of describing and demonstrating uh, the effects of uh, gravity and space. Uh, and the science as we understand it right now in a movie for lay audiences. I actually think they do a great job. Yeah, I, I, that sequence, like you said, is a brilliant example of how they kind of um, play with this tool to explain it to us so that we have a sense of what it means when they come back. And and I think it's Dr. Romilly is um, uh, 23 years older because they had been gone so long. Um, it was a really interesting uh, thing to see. And then continuing from there, just seeing how they kind of explain things, I think it works really well. Um, even, you know, talking about wormholes and, and black holes and and uh, just all of that sort of stuff. It, they do explain it in a way where as I'm watching it, I feel like I'm understanding it. 
now trying to explain it to you. <laughs> just gonna I, feel say. Like, I, I feel like an idiot right now. <laughs> I know. It's very, very challenging to, to describe it like this. And then we take these concepts in the movie, which they're explaining beautifully, and we move into that last part, you know, the, the, our final sort of time, time manipulation climax where we move outside of the science, the sort of astrophysics of it, of what we do understand, and we push into areas that we do not know, right? And and these are the extraordinary circumstances that uh, we have to just accept because it's a movie and because they did their best to display these things on screen. I'm talking at this point about going into a black hole. We don't know what that looks like. Nobody knows what that looks like. So roll the dice and see see what's in there. I had to go watch Neil deGrasse Tyson talking about this movie specifically to better <laughs> understand, to get a better feeling of um, of what they were what they were accomplishing here in this last sequence. And as a result of that, I feel uh, I feel like I like it more uh, because I get the speculation of it uh, at, at a level I didn't the first time around. But I'm very, I'm curious what it is about that sequence that you don't like. I don't mind them going through the black hole. Like all of that is fine. Um, What I, what I struggle with is that it turns into this thing behind the bookcases and he's in this, this construct of the, of their house where he's this ghost in the bookshelf. And now he's dancing around from time to time, um, finding spots in her bedroom, in his daughter's bedroom to, to uh, fiddle with the books and leave her these messages. Um, it just ends up feeling so silly and such a, a kind of a, 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 you know, a movie, a silly movie way of making all of this happen. Oh, I was the ghost all along. Ooh, I was the one holding Anne Hathaway's hand. Oh. It just, it, I, I just, I, I find that it, it, the representation of it, I really struggle with. I don't mind that there's this whole going back through time thing. Um, it's just that idea of it, the way that it was represented, um, as beautiful as it is, I think it's stunning to look at when he's behind the bookshelves and the way that all of that construct is built. But I just, I struggle with the whole, um, just the way that it's, it's connected to the story. All right. So here's what Tyson says. And just, I, I don't know, bear with me. I know I won't do it the way he does it. Uh, he says we have, we have our three dimensions, Right. Um, you know, our X, Y, Z axis, we can move through space, left, right, forward, backward, up and down. And we also have this this other data point, right? This is our our fourth data point, which is time, because you would never say, I'm going to go meet you at uh, 33rd and 3rd. But when? Like, we don't know when. Oh, OK, well, I'm going to meet you tomorrow at 3. But where? We don't know where. We have to have all four. And we as human species have uh, we take it for granted that in fact there are there are four data points to all of these there is um you know xyz and and t right the the fourth point we have to understand that and so his uh, the the way he explains it is it is perfectly rational to believe that if we take uh, if we take ourselves and lift ourselves up sort of one degree removed from where we exist in space such that time becomes a physical manifestation, something that we can see as easily as I can see the desk right in front of me and reach out and touch it, that all time 
would be laid out all at once. So I can I can inter, I can uh, sort of witness every point in time, my birth, my graduation from college, my marriage. I can I can go and, and experience all of those in time, just like I can experience my iced coffee. And that is what they're trying to demonstrate by showing us this grid. Like, this is not just a thing that is, you know, manufactured out of the, you know, beautiful graphic design to, to not have any sort of relevance. We don't know what it is, so let's just, you know, throw just nonsense up on screen and see if it works to be completely, you know, because it satisfies our emotional need for a maudlin connection between father and daughter. It, it really is, you know, something that smarter people than us have speculated is what we might experience if we could just see all time. And then the fact that they layer on top of it this insinuation that, in fact, it is a future us that is already experiencing time in this way that has planted this mechanism inside this wormhole for us to get out of the loop of destruction that we have created for ourselves in the deep past. So it's like three levels of time manipulation inside of itself um, that is uh, that, that they're attempting to unravel all through this relationship between father and daughter at this one spate point in time. That's kind of brain bending. It is. I agree. And I, I get it. I like all of that makes sense to me. I think it's I think it is uh, kind of a, a really interesting idea and the way that they're developing it in the story I find really interesting. I just what I don't like is the cinematic storytelling construct that they chose to turn him into the ghost behind the bookshelf. I, I, <laughs> okay. That is that is my problem. It's such a silly way to make all of that work so that we have these these this ghost mystery at the beginning of the film that gets resolved by the end of the film. That is the struggle I have. It's such a silly idea of of you know dancing around behind the books. Like it, it I don't know. Like it, it all is there. It all makes sense in theory. It's just, it's such a silly idea, and that's my struggle because it's like this this whole idea. It just it feels like writers coming up with something that's clever, and in a film where so, there's so much other smart stuff going on, it just ends up feeling like. All of a sudden, they dumbed it down for for you know dumb Hollywood audiences. <laughs> just, I hate it. Oh, so that's my okay. struggle. Okay, I, uh, I I I relate to that. I'm I'm gonna stop talking about that because uh, I totally see your point. I get it, and uh, on some level, I know you're right, and it just didn't hit me the same way. I would like to tell you the part that makes me feel the way you feel about that. Um, and, and see if you have any relationship to that, uh, to this part. And it is on page 85 of the script. Uh, it is a conversation between Cooper and Romilly and Brand. And it is where, uh, Cooper, uh, breaks the news to Romilly that Brand is actually in love with Wolf Edmonds. And the insinuation is that she is making her decision to, to go to Edmonds' planet instead of Man's planet, uh, because of love. She's in love with Wolf Edmonds. Is that true? Yes. And that makes me want to follow my heart. 
But maybe we've spent too long trying to figure all this out with theory. You're a scientist, Bran. So listen to me. When I say that love isn't something we invented, it's observable, powerful. It has to mean something. Love has meaning, yes. Social utility, social bonding, child rearing. We love people who have died. Where's the social utility in that? None. Maybe it means something more, something we can't yet understand. Maybe it's some evidence, some artifact of a higher dimension that we can't consciously perceive. I'm drawn across the universe to someone I haven't seen in a decade who I know is probably dead. Love is the one thing we're capable of perceiving that transcends dimensions of time and space. Maybe we should trust that, even if we can't understand it yet. All right, Cooper. Yes. The tiniest possibility of seeing Wolf again excites me. That doesn't mean I'm wrong. Honestly, Amelia, it, it might. Andy, I hate this so stinking much. It's it's one page of the script and it makes me just uh it it's just the worst. It taints a a a a major portion of the movie for me because they they move into what is it, this is for me the maudlin sort of romantic sentimentality that they have excised from so much uh, so, so many other areas of the movie i don't mind the father daughter stuff i think that's really strong uh, but for for her to have this sort of feeling out of nowhere in the script seems totally unearned i Largely agree with you. Um, this is an example, I think, of the Nolan brothers coming up with an idea that I think it, on the surface makes for a really interesting thing to explore in a film like this, right? This whole idea of how how does love tie into all this? Is there an element for something like love when everything else has become so scientific? Um, I, I think that it's worth exploring, and I do think it makes for an interesting concept in this film. Unfortunately, yes, I do feel that this is one of those elements where it is sloppy and I don't think that they came at it the right way and it, it ends up kind of creating a stumbling block um, that is kind of a tough one to get past and it's it's frustrating. It, but it's it's so interesting and that's why I find it even more frustrating because these are two very solid uh, writers and a very solid director who are are taking this idea and and uh, just they're not finding a way to integrate it um, as effectively as it should be into this film. So um, so yeah, I I agree with you on that one. There are exactly three mentions. No, there are more mentions. There one, two, three, four, five mentions of uh, you know Edmonds before um, that particular scene. There is one that insinuates where uh, uh, Cooper asks Tars, you know, who's Edmonds? Yeah. You know, were they close? Um, and, uh, and and so that's unanswered. So I say it's unearned. It's not entirely unearned. It's just not well-earned. 
Uh, yeah. So I, you know, I should should speak that's more clearly. It's than sloppy. That. Yeah. It is sloppy. Yeah, it, it's it's sloppy. And in a movie that's so long, um, having those mentions so f- you know few and far between, or you know, are, is I think it really hinders what could otherwise be an important thing. And the payoff is so poor, right? The payoff of that entire line, her entire you know monologue here, uh, is at the very end of the movie where she buries him on some rocks, it, it, it feels like wasted, uh, like such a waste. Was your impression of that last scene that she had gotten there, he was still alive, they lived together for a while and then he died? Or was it she got there and found him dead? Got there and found him dead. Yeah, that's, that's what I thought too. I just wanted uh, and- to make sure I wasn't missing something but. Did you, I mean, what do you think, not just about her being alive, but what did you think about how they, they sort of wrote out the movie where he, you know, steals a ship and goes to find her? Uh, I I kind of like it. I, I That whole ending, I um, I find actually quite strong. I love the visuals. I love this. Um, it's so funny because when that ending um, happens, I feel like for the first time in any movie that I can recall, I'm seeing kind of a a cinematic depiction of exactly those like probably 70s or even earlier um, drawings of what the future um, uh, you know space ports would look like or Mm -hmm. uh, you know the with the giant tube that you're living in right and when he walks out and he looks up and he sees the kids playing baseball and the ball goes all the way across the tube and it breaks a window on the other flip side like I, I don't know. It just that, and I know other films have done stuff like this. Um, the um, the other movie I'm picturing is Elysium with Matt Damon, where he is trying to get up to the space station um, that uh, Jodie Foster is controlling. Um, but it's but this one really felt like the authentic drawing. You know, it totally reminded me of that, and it was really exciting to see. I love Ellen Burstyn. I mean, we we've done a series on her. I just always mm-hmm. love seeing her. It's great starting a film with her, having her um, here in the ending. That moment between the two of them is so powerful. Um, I think they do a great job with it. And and then I think it's a really interesting way to end it, where it's like, here's this guy who's lost in time, essentially. He's no longer in the world um, that he left behind uh, time-wise. And so what's left for him? The only person out there is Brand. And um, and I, I thought it was an interesting way to end it where he takes the ship and goes to save her. And that, to me, made for kind of an exciting, uh, exciting ending. And I didn't have a problem with it. You know what's interesting, Andy? I think this movie, you could make the case that this is a prequel to Buck Rogers. <laughs> <laughs> He's a oh, man lost in time. Anyway, I, uh, you know, I'm looking at the end of the script and I think I just want to button this particular piece up there is nothing in here that that um makes any sort of a case that you know she got to the planet and had any experience with Edmonds at all right they they yeah. he really starts with you know case is is you know they discovered a a r- massive rockfall um and case is excavating the pod and she is in tears because you know she presumably knows he's in there and that's really it. As they keep going, the VO, Burston's VO, you know, setting up camp alone in a strange galaxy, and and uh, huh. so that I, it seems pretty clear. But I've I've heard that uh, you know there are those who believe that there's more of a story that happened on Edmund's planet that we might be missing. I don't I don't see it. 
It's from the uh, relay prop. It was in orbit around the wormhole. So it's a wormhole, and every time we'd come around, we would receive images from the other side of the foreign galaxy. I like swinging a periscope around. Exactly. So we've got a pretty good idea what we're going to find on the other side, huh? Navigationally. Well, I do think it's interesting that this film um, has been around for a little while. And what I found so interesting about the concept is it was actually conceived by um, film producer Linda Obst and Kip Thorne, the theoretical physicist that we um, had mentioned before. The pair of them had collaborated on the film Contact, also with Matthew McConaughey, back in 1997. And they had known each other ever since Carl Sagan, of all people, set them up on a blind date, which I just thought was just fantastic. (laughs) Carl Sagan. Every time I see I see something about him now, I, I just realized that guy was such a player. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the two of them came up with this whole uh, concept. They wrote like an eight-page uh, outline or treatment. Spielberg got attached in 2006 um, and was developing it for quite a while between uh, Paramount and then over at DreamWorks and then... Um, I think it just, uh, he had Jonathan um, uh, Nolan come on to start developing the script in 2007. Um, it kind of shifted hands a few times. Spielberg left. Um, it, it ended up with Paramount again. And then they partnered with Warner Brothers and they brought, uh, they having worked with um, Christopher Nolan quite a bit on his Batman films, um, brought him on um, to initially produce, but then uh, uh, direct it. And this is just a bit that I I wanted to read because it goes to show how complicated some of these like backroom negotiations are as far as who's going to be involved in what and how. So this is uh, toward the end of all this. Though Paramount and Warner Brothers are traditionally rival studios, Warner Brothers, which released Nolan's Batman films and worked with Nolan's Syncope, sought a stake in Nolan's production of Interstellar from Paramount. Warner Brothers agreed to give Paramount its rights to co-finance the next film in the Friday the 13th horror franchise and to have a stake in a future film based on the TV series South Park. Warner Brothers also agreed to let Paramount co-finance a to-be-determined A-list Warner's property. In August 2013, uh, Legendary Pictures finalized an agreement with Warner Brothers to finance approximately 25% of the film's production. Although it failed to renew its eight-year production partnership with Warner Brothers, Legendary reportedly agreed to forego financing for Batman vs. Superman Dawn of Justice in exchange for the stake in Interstellar. <laughs> wow. It's so convoluted. And these are like these are those backroom dealings that the, uh, the heads of studios and producers are, are doing just to get the money together for these, <laughs> for these big projects. It just sounds like a nightmare. <laughs> Really, what it is? It sounds. It sounds exactly like your job. What are you talking about? This is what you do, right? You're a hustler. Uh yeah. I, I you know, the day that I'm hustling at this level uh, would be. Uh, <laughs> I, I'll, I'll let you know. I, I can't wait. Know. I cannot. Holy wait. cow! But Let's, anyway, they did get it together, and here it is. And now we get to talk about the deep scene dive. Let's do it. Scene we're talking about is where is it? It's about an hour and eighteen minutes into the movie. Uh, yep, I think it's 118 to 122. And this is the scene actually immediately after the sequence we talked about earlier down on Surf Planet, uh, where they return to find uh, that uh, 23 years have passed and uh, dear uh, Cooper sits down to watch the last 23 years of uh, videos sent by his family uh, and see what's been up. 
We've got years of messages stored. This is, I think this scene just exemplifies the strength of the performances here, uh, the strength of Nolan and his directing and the patience that he and his editor used, uh, the, the simplicity that he and his DP used in the way they shot it. Um, uh, I mean, everything about it works incredibly effectively to, to put this entire scene forward. You have uh, Matthew McConaughey playing Cooper as he's watching these videos. And it's just, it's really heartbreaking just watching him initially just breaking into tears with a smile as he's watching uh, his young son, Tom. And then as he's kind of hearing Tom talk about meeting a new girl and all this sort of stuff, that's that, you know, tears of joy turn to kind of tears of of uh, devastation as he's realized he's kind of lost all of this of his of his kids lives and then uh, Casey Affleck oh that was Timothy Chalamet as young Tom and then Casey Affleck all of a sudden were with him as older Tom introducing their his him and his wife's baby to you know grandpa and uh, just kind of all of this and then you get an amazing scene with Casey Affleck where he's he's talking about um, you know not knowing if his dad's ever listening to this and it's very painful and you see like there's there's so much subtext going on with what he's um saying and how he's reacting and you can see all of the pain and the um the anger and the sadness and everything that he has um as he's basically kind of saying goodbye to his dad for the last time and it's amazing um followed up by Jessica Chastain in really a powerful scene where she is for the first time talking to her dad sending one of these messages Hey, Dad. Hey, Mary. You son of a bitch. I never made one of these when you were still responding because I was so mad at you for leaving. And then when you went quiet, it seemed like I should live with that decision, and I have. Today's my birthday. And it's a special one because you told me you once told me that when you came back we might be the same age. And today I'm the age you were when you left. This might be a real good time for you to come back. You get this really amazing kind of 
roller coaster of emotions over the course of these four minutes as as Coop is kind of his entire world of what he knew with his family is just ripped asunder and he's he's thrilled with the growth that they've gone through but broken by the fact that he you know these kids don't love him or they they don't have him and he's kind of abandoned them it's it's just so powerful it is and you know i credit to matthew mcconaughey i i I feel like i don't know is it is it wrong of me to to have a sense that people don't take him seriously at this point in his career um i think it's wrong really yeah don't don't you think he proved uh himself uh, being taken serious just the year before with Dallas Buyers Club? Well, that's not really what I'm talking about. I'm talking about him as a as a person, Matthew McConaughey, not Matthew McConaughey, the actor. We know he's capable of some extraordinary performances. I, I absolutely think that. But he is often, as a human being, I think he's lampooned a lot. And some of it, you know, it, it, all right, all right, all right. Some of his speeches at award ceremonies are crazy. Yep. Uh, and and he's, he's not. But I feel like this is yet another example of his, you know, absolute uh, sort of devotion to the craft and his uh, affinity with taking on a, a character mantle. And this is one of those sequences when you say roller coaster. I mean, we really get the whole range of emotions and it's all s- just slammed together here, um, you know, thanks to the, the editing of, of Lee Smith. Uh, I would love to have been on set, you know, watching this whole performance. Like, I'd love to see his whole performance uh, because I imagine it was it was much longer and and um, uh, even more rich. Uh, he's he's a great choice to helm a film like this because he's easy for an audience to connect with right out of the gate. You don't really need much more than just seeing him and you know you're already um, going to be hanging out with somebody that you like. Yeah. Um, and as he kind of goes through the stuff with the farming and the stuff with the kids and the stuff with the drone and everything, he's just he makes for a, a kind of a fun dad to be around. And, and you know, there are elements that you're probably like, eh, OK, but on the whole, it's, it's he makes for a great dad. And yeah. it's just it's it's fun to see him. And then when he makes this decision to go into space um, and it turns into this this, you know, devastating uh, uh, moment here. I mean, I I think he delivers the goods. And if people just aren't expecting him to be able to do that, then I I, I think it's uh, sad at this point. Yeah, I think so too. Jessica Chastain is uh, as the adult Murph. This is the first time we see her uh, on screen when her face hits the the screen, and it's it is as jarring to us, I think, as it is to Cooper. Um, you know, when he sees her for the first time in you know so many years. Um, and now sees that she's a grown woman, um, and uh, it it is it's it's a fun bit of jarring because we know she's coming. You know, we know we get we're going to get to see her at some point, and this in fact allows us a uh, the visual transition across space. Um, you know, because she delivers her little sequence when they're done with this scene, we transition back to Earth, and and uh, now she is is at work. It's an it's an interesting way to to move us across. The universe and uh, effective storytelling. I love the way that that happens, and all of a sudden, we're essentially back in time now. Yeah, um, at the time she recorded that, and he was probably, you know, stuck on a wave, 
and and uh, just the way that all of that ended up working out, I, I I found just so brilliantly constructed. And then we can, and that allows us to then move forward with the film, um, doing more jumping back and forth through time and space, as we see what she's doing, and as we see what he's doing. So it was just very smart, I, and I found the the way that um, that Nolan um, opted to kind of put that together, just a really um, um, uh, clever way of, of uh, keeping the space-time element of the story working in his favor. This is not uh, as much of a showcase for Hoyt van Hoytema, um, uh, his camera work. But it is, I, I think, you know, the, the something we don't talk about a ton with the camera um, element of it, but they're also really responsible for the lighting, and yeah. how the lighting ends up working. And I think what we get here is some really interesting lighting as he's in this, um, uh, this the I don't know what it is, the little space station thing where it's spinning around. Mm-hmm. And so you get that recurring flash of, of white hot light like hitting his face um, and kind of bleaching the image out. And it made for uh, just an exciting thing to see because it was... It it uh, I don't know just allowed for this you know usually light is something that exposes the truth and all of that and but it was such an intense light that um, I found that it it allowed for kind of the intensity of what Coop was was going through here to really shine through. Music by Hans Zimmer and I bring up Hans Zimmer because this is the one weird music cue to my ear uh, in the whole film. Because I love the score. I think the score is fantastic. And the, the score here in particular uh, is, is really great. And we get a wonderful, um, sort of lovely uh, build as background of uh, the son's experience and the grandpa experience. And then he cuts out. And right then the music goes completely to silence. And it feels like he just turned off the TV, which means that the soundtrack was or the score was actually the soundtrack to the video and I couldn't shake that it's it's as if there was a laugh track to the movie to my or to that particular video clip to my ear and when they turned it off and then the music comes back on as soon as she hits the screen and so now he's watching it's like he's watching a video clip with a soundtrack that was built into it. Kind of, the music kind of comes back. It's, it doesn't come back the same. It's a different piece. It it's is a just kind piece. of that single note where it's, yep. and it's a very slow build. So it's not like, you know, it's not like a hard cut and then you hard cut back into something. It's, it's the, on the flip side, it's a, it's a much slower. Yeah. It's rise a slow build. In that of course. Note. Right. Um, I actually really liked that. I liked the way that they were playing with that in the editing. And it happens a few times with the music where, uh, like you said, the scene is playing, and then almost as um, it's 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 interesting because it, for me it was almost like an inverse of like the little the little uh, hits you do with a jump scare, right? It, it's almost the inverse of that where it's like a you know this this silent moment, and the silent hits you in a way that the 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 sound effect would when there's a jump scare. But not to scare you. It's just, but it's an emotional hit. And I found it really powerful as I was watching the footage of Tom. And then as he finishes his message and shuts off, that music, which is kind of like, I felt it was Coop's emotions. And it was just kind of like we were connected to him as he was feeling this outpouring from his son and everything. And then it just gets cut off and it's just like leaves us emotionally like um, wanting, but it's not there. And I really liked that. 
Um, and I don't mind the musical build after that. I do struggle a little bit with the pause in the video between Tom and Murph because as we had seen from the previous cuts from video to video, it's always just a hard cut, you know, yeah. and, and I'm assuming that's that not how computers system, work. Yeah. Yeah. The system's just playing one video, next video, next video, next video. And I felt like there's a jump in there somewhere where there's a lot more videos. We're just not seeing all of them. But um, yes, it was like, um, I think a deliberately cinematic uh, pause that Nolan decided to use before, uh, before Murph pops up in her video. And I felt it was a little bit of a cheat. Um, I didn't mind it, I guess, but I did feel it was a little awkward because it does feel like the, you know, that's the end of transmission. Oh, nope, there's one more. And, you know, it just is <laughs> right. like, that's <laughs> right. A little bit, but, but. yeah, I, I totally agree. It was weird. Yeah. As far as the production design, uh, Nathan Crowley was the production designer. And I think, uh, I mean, this this paired with the visual effects, um, it's some of the most stunning stuff that I've seen. It's just beautiful. The way they designed the ships, the way they designed the um, the models and the model work throughout. Um, I think it's just such an incredible job of what you can accomplish. And while we may not have um, like a big effects scene in this particular uh, uh, moment that we're talking about, as you already mentioned, the great way that the lights are playing, re- uh, representing the rotating the ship and everything. But also, if you go beyond that and just go down to Earth, I mean, what they accomplished down on Earth for the production design, as far as the um, like the cornfields, they were filming all this up in Canada, and I, I guess they they had to plant um, 500 acres of corn so that they could then subsequently destroy it in the dust and fires. Um, I, I love that idea. I, I love that they found these amazing locations in Iceland on this glacier and um, uh, the, the the water area in Iceland that they used to film those uh, particular scenes. It's just, it, it really highlights what these people were doing, um, designing this world. I mean, it's some of the most stunning stuff to see. And I don't know if you saw it, um, in in on IMAX film when it came out, but I did. And, I did. Yeah. I mean, it really was mind boggling. It was, and and you know what's uh, it, it was amazing, and uh, I was flabbergasted by what what they created in terms of the dust, and in looking at the interviews uh, around um, you know Nathan Crowley and and uh, Chris Nolan talking about what they were trying to accomplish on Earth. Uh, they were using uh, the Dust Bowl reference, like early, early reference photography of the 1930s, Oklahoma, Kansas, and northern Texas. And what the farmers did to the earth in that period that that led to the Dust Bowl. And Nolan says at one point, we we thought, this is going to be great. We have perfect reference footage to to do this and realized we actually, it, it was what we created was horrific and we had to tone it down. Uh, because nobody would have believed the kind of stuff we we should have created if we wanted to make it historically accurate. Um, so that it it leads you to believe or to see this even as as more of a a, a film that is uh, has a quite an angle of ecological sort of activism uh, at its heart. And um, um, you know they, it's it's pretty stunning uh, both what they created and what they're trying to conjure for us well having uh, lived through several dust storms uh here in the uh the phoenix area Ooh, haboobs haboobs i will say it looked pretty good to me <laughs> <laughs> and i mean a lot of it is because they weren't even it wasn't digital i mean they did some yeah. digital elements as well but 
I mean, they were blowing dust everywhere. I mean, it was amazing watching the behind the scenes of, of them actually making this stuff happen. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. It was really stunning. Let's run through just yeah. a couple of other folks in the cast that we wanted to talk about. Obviously, you've mentioned Ellen Burstyn, old old Murph. Mackenzie Foy was a lovely young Murph playing uh, Murph oh, at 10. Good. She was fantastic. This is probably one of my favorite character performances of the good John Lithgow. It, he seemed so natural in his skin in this uh, in this performance that it made me just want to watch more and more of him. Yeah, I, he was great. I completely agree. Uh, favorite uh, Bill Irwin, one of the great silent clowns. Uh, if you haven't gone and looked at uh, YouTube clips of his performance in largely New York in the 80s, you want to see like a guy who was clearly born out of time. He is every bit the character of uh, you know Chaplin and Keaton. And I mean, this guy is has an amazing performance aesthetic and is worth seeing. And part of the reason they hired him to take on the role of Tars is because he was such a great sort of puppet. And uh, they made a real conscientious decision to to put a character uh, behind this fantastic robot and uh, and not just do voiceover in post. Uh, and, and I think it's uh, I, I think it was a great choice. That's what I found so interesting is watching the behind the scenes footage of him operating this uh, this TARS robot and and seeing how he would kind of move it and how it was attached to his feet and he would kind of shift and, and make it move. It was really cool. And I mean, yeah, I was so impressed with Bill Bill Irwin. I had no idea that he had done this sort of stuff. I mean, I, I was familiar with him from some Jonathan Demi movies and stuff like that, but it's like this is a whole side of him that I didn't yeah. even know existed. So it was Truly. exciting to see. Uh, partner in crime was uh, Josh Stewart as Case. I think these two robots were just fantastic together. The voices were wonderful. It's you know one of the greatest bits of AI, uh, listening to them discuss the humor and honesty settings. Uh, I, oh, I found just great. really touching. Well, and it was also cool to see how they how they utilized them and how they were designed in shapes that kind of got smaller and smaller and smaller so that they could change their shape and, and use their, you know, kind of unfold to create arms or they could turn into like the, the rotating wheel things or whatever they needed to. It was such a fascinating design. Absolutely loved it. Absolutely. Anne Hathaway as brand, uh, you know, apart from that stupid, stupid love thing, uh, I thought she was good. Yeah, I, I think she's yeah. great. And obviously uh, a returning player to, uh, yeah. to Nolan's films. I mean, he's one of those guys loves using his people. Like Michael Caine, uh, who aged less gracefully for me than I'd, I'd hoped. I really like him in the beginning. And then, you know, as soon as we transition back to him as an old man, he feels every bit as good as John Lithgow feels in this movie to me. Michael Caine feels weirdly out of place in the end. Um, to me, it's uh, it's a little bit forced. But still, love seeing Michael Caine in these kinds of movies. This does lead us to the, the central antagonist, mean Matt Damon. Oh, yes. Is it me, or did they actually surprise the cast with Mac, Matt Damon? I mean, I I was listening to a Bill Irwin interview, and he said that that he was surprised when he saw Matt Damon on set. Uh, I didn't hear that, but that's pretty funny. I just found it so funny that this is like Saving Private Ryan, uh, two. <laughs> <you know? laughs> totally, uh, such a straight because I mean that was another thing. It's like, oh, it's Matt Damon. And here they are. To, <laughs> That's too funny. Yeah, so funny. So Chris Nolan, once again, getting his way with film stock. He is a holdout. It's so funny. Yeah, he, um, you know, he pushed Paramount, who was really trying to stop releasing films on film and go only digital. 
he pushed them to make an exception for him. And they did. They ended up releasing this on film initially. And eventually, as it expanded, it went to a lot of digital uh, prints. But uh, yeah, the power of the Nolan. It was sure when pretty. When it comes to film stock. Show pretty. You must have a lot of stock in Kodak or something. <laughs> I'm sure that's it. I'm sure that's it. How to do an award season. This was a popular one. This is one of those movies, uh, largely for effects, but I mean, and I will say, this is the period in time when there are just so many award ceremonies out there. It had 44 wins and another 144 nominations. So lots of nominations, lots of love for this one. Um, At the Oscars, it won Best Achievement in Visual Effects, which is well-deserved. Um, best score lost to the Grand Budapest Hotel. Best sound mixing lost to Whiplash. Best sound editing lost to American Sniper, and best production design lost to the Grand Budapest Hotel. Over at the Saturn Awards, the uh, Sci-Fi, Fantasy, and Horror Film Awards, it won for best sci-fi film, best production design, best special effects, best performance by a younger actor, Mackenzie Foy, best writing, and best music. Uh, for best supporting actress, Jessica Chastain lost to Renee Russo in Nightcrawler, which is it's. Again, I don't really understand their their philosophy for why they bring some films in that aren't sci-fi, fantasy, or horror, but uh, Nightcrawler is in there. Best Actress Anne Hathaway lost to Rosamund Pike in Gone Girl. Maybe they classify both of those as horror. I don't know. Weird. Uh, Matthew McConaughey lost Best Actor to Chris Pratt in Guardians of the Galaxy. James Gunn at Guardians also um, took home the Best Director, uh, leaving Nolan in the lurch. And Best Editing, Lost to Edge of Tomorrow. Um, And then, you know, I was going to leave it there, but then I saw the Golden Schmoes. Um, It didn't win any Golden Schmoes, but it was nominated for some some key ones. It actually nominated for quite a few, but the ones that I thought were funny, it was nominated for both Most Overrated Movie and Most Underrated Movie. (laughs) (laughs) Well played, Schmoes. I love that. All right. How did it do in the box office? Uh, well, Nolan's space epic cost a cool $165 million to make. That's so much money that I'd like to imagine it includes prints and advertising, but I can't <laughs> find that information. Uh, but it leaves the budget sitting at $168.3 million in today's dollars. The movie opened November 5th, 2014, and drew in the crowds, earning $188 million domestically and just under $480 million internationally, landing with an adjusted gross of $681.1 million. Despite its cost and its length, it still ended up with an adjusted profit per finished minute of just over $3 million. That's insane, but I guess it goes to show how Christopher Nolan knows how to bring those crowds in. He does know how to do that, Andy. He is a, he's, I, I think just in, in terms of wrapping us up here, I mean, I, I, this movie just makes me reflect on the, the uh, attention to detail that if you don't like the details, that's fine, but you can't, it is inarguable <laughs> that he, he thinks through uh, just about every teeny tiny detail of his films. And um, it, it was quite a spectacle. I have to say, I was worried going into it this time that so much of that spectacle would be tied into my IMAX viewing experience. And that was not true for me this time. I enjoyed the movie on its merits, even on my smaller television. Yeah, I I think that the sound helps. It's a great sound mix. And I had the volume up and it just, I mean, it really envelops you. So uh, yeah, I agree. It's, it still works well on a small screen. Totally. It's time, Andy, we need to rank it. Let's do it. 
Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You'll see all of the movies we've ever done on this show, or you can swipe over in your show notes, tap flickchart. You'll go to this movie, add it to your own list. Where do we start? First up, Interstellar or Numi, the girl with the dragon tattoo. I'm going to say Interstellar. Uh, yeah, I am too, despite its problems, just for the scope, I think. Um, oh, this is fun. Interstellar or Time Crimes? Interstellar. I'm saying Time Crimes. Let's do it. All right. One, two, three. Paper. Scissors. Ooh. Cut you up. Interstellar or Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance? Interstellar. Hmm. I guess I'm going to say uh, Interstellar. Interstellar or The Wizard of Oz? Wizard of Oz for me. These two movies, side by side, I'd put on Interstellar. Okay. One, two, three. three. Rock. Oh, you're kidding me. Interstellar or Star Trek Nemesis? (laughs) Oh, man. I just voted Interstellar over The Wizard (laughs) of Oz, and now I have to come up with Nemesis. Uh, uh, I do they like both that. have I, elements that are terrible. Yes, they do. But Data's I do. Brother, I. Uh, it, it was so much more interesting than I uh, gave it credit for. I think uh, Interstellar is just doing some uh, approaching some things that are much more ambitious, and uh, it gets yeah, my I vote here. Uh, mine too. Interstellar or Das Boot? I will das go with submarine. Yeah. Interstellar or Wild Tales? You know why? It's because on Interstellar, the oceans were not deep enough. <laughs> I just would not would not buy that. They're very deep uh, once every uh, every few minutes. Yes, right. right. Around very minutes. deep. An awfully deep ocean. <laughs> uh, Interstellar or Wild Tales? Interstellar. Let me say Wild Tales. All right. One, One two, two, three. Paper. Rock. Scissors. Oh, Andy, this is... A crushing defeat. I keep crushing you. I know. Interstellar or Glengarry Glen Ross? Glengarry Glen Ross. Yeah, I'm going to go with Mammoth. Interstellar or Rebel Without a Cause? I uh, I think I'm on the fence on this one, um, but I'll I would lean Interstellar. Yeah, I am too. All right. Well, that lands Interstellar at 120 on our chart of 354 films, so it puts it at about. A 66%. What's that do on your personal list? Before I rewatched this, it was at 31.77 out of 39.67 on my chart. Really low. Really low. Um, It's kind of my Children of Men. I I don't love it as much as I think you might love Children of Men now. Um, I have more problems with this one still, but it's a really strong film. It moved up quite a bit. It's at 14.81, which is about a 63%, so really close to... to where it landed here. Uh, it, it ended up much higher on my own list uh, at 129 out of 1,023, which puts it at 87%. If I go by the algorithm, that should be a four-and-a-half-star film. Uh, and I'm I'm going to dodge that uh, by just one-half star, and I'm going to say that's a four-star and a like for me on letterbox.com. Where's, what's it do for you? Um, I am at three-and-a-half and a like, so averages out at 3.75. Which will round up to a four. Round up to a four with a like. There we go. Nice job. Who would have thunk it? Who would have thunk it? Uh, Well done, Chris. Well done. Indeed, indeed. All right. So what does that do for us? Where do we go from here? We're going to wrap up our time time series, yeah? 
Yeah, we are ending the series with uh, the Spirit Brothers. Um, really fascinating film uh, all from the same year, Predestination, uh, with Ethan Hawke and uh, Sarah Snoop and Noah Taylor. This would have been a great mashup with Interstellar. Like everything in Predestination, but uh, on a spinning ship traveling through a wormhole. <laughs> I would have wanted to see that movie. I'm very excited about Predestination, Andy. It's the one that I've been looking forward to the most. Uh, and uh, talking about it with you next week is, <laughs> oh, I can't wait. Uh, but before that, we have our Saturday matinee for our glorious uh, and kindly Patreon subscribers, where we're going to take on our lists. What have we come up with for the list this oh, week? Oh, yes. It's going to be fun. We're going to be looking at, uh, in, in honor of Predestination, uh, we have a few options that are uh, Patreon members will get to choose from when they pick what list we're going to do. It's either films starring Ethan Hawke. Uh, I think that uh, we've talked about him enough in trailers and such that it warrants uh, his own list. <laughs> he certainly True. has been in enough. Um, this is a tricky one. Movies with an unnamed principal character. <laughs> okay, that that's is, a disaster. <laughs> that's We're all going to end up with like the same few films. Right. <laughs> or films that are based on short stories which is a broad one but uh, should allow for uh, some variety so those are the options our patreon members uh, will vote and uh, if you want to uh, be a part of that for as little as a dollar a month you can head on over to patreon.com slash the next reel and uh, become a member and you can be a part of the group you should do that you can also learn more about us at the next subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app or follow us on twitter and facebook at the next reel which could not happen without the hard work of Stephen Smart, who runs our Instagram program. Ben Steerick helps out over there. Ben Lott runs all things Twitter and, of course, The Blotspot. And you can find our theme, Ragtime Instrumental, uh, on the SoundCloud page of the fantastic Eli Catlin. Thank you, Eli, for letting us use that song. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. Uh, you know, we both like this movie, so as uh, we're prone to do, we went to the one stars in the fine Amazon uh, marketplace. And uh, I'd, I'd like to start. Uh, Take it I, away. Yours is a little bit longer, so I'm going to start with uh, Frank in Kentucky, who says that he would like uh, his three hours back. This is a truly horrible movie with a very limited and flawed knowledge of physics. The writer-director makes a great effort to produce a thought-provoking movie. He completely fails. In the end, the only salvation for this movie are the horrific plot stumbles which afford some chance at humor. If you liked Plan 9 from Outer Space, you might get a chuckle from Interstellar, but with a runtime of three hours, that's a stretch. Wow. Andy, Frank... That's is I <laughs> I imagine he must be a published uh, physicist, and he is probably at the bleeding edge of uh, studying space-time in the center of black hole. I'll bet he knows what's in the middle of a black hole, and that's, that is the foundation on which he stands to say that this movie has a limited and flawed knowledge of physics. Because, I don't know, seems like Nolan got together kind of an army of physics people to back well, him up. I I think that the Plan Nine from Outer Space uh, uh, comparison, or the, the you know, if you like this, yeah, you'll like that, yes, uh, I think that says 
everything about his uh, scientific uh, a lot. studies. Yeah. What's yours? Well, I've got a one star by Danny G, who says the emperor has no clothes. Hmm. I've never been to a film in my entire life so full of despair and at the same time so campy and ridiculous. If I hadn't been with friends, I would have walked out. I will avoid films by this director in the future, like The Plague. The only friend who liked it said she enjoys soap operas. That pretty much sums it up. If you like soap operas, you will love Interstellar. There are so many plot holes. Several of us were cracking jokes by the end of the movie. So many parts of Interstellar are so ridiculous or make no sense whatsoever. Sure, the cinematography is magnificent, but in the end, it's nothing but pretty wallpaper when the story is drawn out. Tedious, annoying, maudlin, nonsensical, irrelevant, dopey, and depressing. All I can say is when the only food humanity has left to eat is corn and corn products, then you are going to end up with a very corny movie. Oh my God, really? Corny movie? But also going to the if you liked, then you would like place. Yeah, right. Well, so if I you do like, like soap I do operas like soap and Plan Nine from Outer Space, <laughs> this you're is man. Love this movie. That is a Venn diagram in which the only movie <laughs> in that crossover is Interstellar. Me, Luke, and Laura, and Ed Wood are going to hang out and watch Interstellar. That is a that's a party in the in the uh, the black hole bookcase where you can just watch it forever. Hey, you know what else that black hole bookcase looks like? It looks like that new um, uh, Apple commercial. The Spike, oh. the Spike Jones Apple commercial. Yeah, That's the, the first thing I thought of. Yeah, that was so great. Interesting, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Man, that's apropos of exactly nothing. Thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs>